0: A number of years ago, there was a worship leader that I knew personally who was on staff at another church. Uh, He was a a good guy, you know, happily married. uh, People loved him and they loved it when he led worship. I know I did. You know, I was at some of the gatherings where he was leading and when he sang, it was uh, very sincere and heartfelt. I mean, he seemed really devoted to God and had a soft heart. You know, it was a joy to worship with him. But at some point, he found himself becoming attracted to a woman in the church, who was not his wife. I think she may have been married too. And he became infatuated with her. And so it wasn't long before she noticed his interest. And then, well, one thing led to another. They started meeting in secret, and it became physical. I forget how long it went on for, but in the end, they were found out. And he had every opportunity to repent, and end the relationship, but he didn't. He went off with this woman, lost his job, his reputation, but more seriously, his marriage and his faith, he shipwrecked his faith, became hard-hearted. and As I understand it still is to this day, almost 20 years later. Sadly, that kind of scenario is all too common. And it's easy to look at a guy like that and make assumptions and judgments and think that we're somehow above it all. You know, I'm not someone who would commit adultery. But the thing is, you probably already have. As I heard someone say, no sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. It's highly likely that we have all committed adultery in our hearts at some time or another, where we've imagined ourselves with someone. And when that goes unchecked, then action will often follow when given the opportunity. And that's what happened to this guy. It was a progression. A path that we choose to walk down when we start to cultivate lustful thoughts. A path that leads to destruction. And maybe some of you listening might be on that path right now. And it could be men or women because this affects us all. And if so then I pray that as you hear the words of Jesus it will bring you to your senses and cause you to turn around. And I pray that this message will cause us all to cry out to God for his help to keep our hearts pure and unadulterated in this highly sensualized culture that we live in today. Now I know it's a rather serious start to this message But it's essentially what Jesus is saying in the next few verses we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read them now in Matthew 5 verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us six practical examples of what life in his kingdom looks like. Last week, Susie looked at murder and anger. And here, Jesus turns his attention to another destructive sin, adultery. And of course, like murder, this comes straight from the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh commandment from Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And no doubt, when Jesus said these words, they, you know, there would have been many in the crowd who would have felt good about themselves, You know how they'd kept the Ten Commandments. Certainly the Pharisees would have taken great pride in that. You know, It's what set them apart from all the sinners. But Jesus knows differently, because Jesus knows our hearts. So he says to the crowd, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he's not talking here about, uh, appreciating someone's beauty or natural attraction. He's not talking about being tempted to think lustful thoughts. The, the Bible's clear that Jesus, in his humanity, was tempted himself, just as we are, and yet did not sin. The example that Jesus gives here is looking at someone else's wife with the purpose of desiring her. That's what the wording means. It's undressing someone with our eyes, thinking about what it would be like to be with them fantasizing about them. Jesus says that person has already, has already committed adultery with her in his heart, in his innermost thoughts. He's imagined it, dwelt on it, been tainted by it. And that kind of thinking, cultivating lustful thoughts outside of marriage, is going on every day in the hearts and minds of all kinds of men, including pastors and professors, husbands, and fathers. And of course, you know, while Jesus is calling out the men here, we know this doesn't just apply to men, but to women as well. And between members of the same sex. That's why I said, I suspect very few believers have not crossed the line from looking to lusting at some point or another. We are all guilty. But surely you say, you know, just thinking something is not as bad as doing it, right? I mean, not all sins are equal, are they? Anger's not as bad as murder. Lust isn't as bad as adultery. There are far greater social and personal consequences for murder and adultery, which is true. But what we need to understand is the progressive nature of sin, how it starts as a a seed sown into our hearts, and it might be anger. It might be lust, but if left unchecked, it begins to put down roots, and it grows. As I said earlier, when the heart is ready, then action will surely follow if given the opportunity. If a situation presents itself where you could be sure, you would not be found out. So, not all sins are equal, but they all originate the heart. And that is the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is bringing us back to the heart. Because our tendency is to just focus on external behavior. You know, we make morality about the things we do, how we appear, and we look down on those who behave badly. But Jesus looks upon the heart. As Suzili said last week, God has always cared about the state of his people's hearts. Jesus wasn't taking one thing away from the law, but deepening our understanding of its scope. So Jesus is really saying nothing new here, but rather calling people back to a wholehearted devotion to God. Because if the heart is right, then that affects our behavior, our actions, our whole lives. And as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, it's the pure in heart who will see God. But those who habitually dwell on such things, whether in their imagination, or perhaps stirring up lustful thoughts through looking at pornography, you know, those who follow the way of sensuality, as it says in 2 Peter 2, where uh, Peter talks about people who indulge their passions, whose eyes are full of adultery, he says. And he seems to be talking about Christians those who had once known Jesus as Lord, but who would become entangled again in the defilements of the world. For them, heaven and hell are at stake." That's what Peter seems to be implying in that passage, and it's what Jesus seems to be implying here, that such people do not belong in God's kingdom. In fact, they're on the road to hell. Now, that sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? But I can't see how we can interpret this any other way jesus said if your right eye causes you to stumble right because you're looking at a woman with lustful intent then gouge out your eye because you're better off losing your eye than for your whole body to go to hell what did he mean well the word that jesus used here that we translate hell is the word gehenna And Gehenna was a real place. It was a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. And in Israel's past, it had been used as a place of child sacrifice. So it was a detestable place. Later on, it became a garbage dump for all the sewage and refuse from the city. Everything that was unclean and defiled was burned there. The fires in Gehenna smoldered and burned continuously. And that's what Jesus is referring to here, and many other times in the Gospels. It's the reverse of heaven. If God is inside the city, inside the heavenly Jerusalem with his people, then hell is outside the city, a place of abject loneliness and isolation, a place of judgment and despair. Now, I don't want to get into the whole theology of hell, the primary reason why Jesus is referring to Gehenna is to underline the seriousness of sin, of what it leads to. And clearly, it's a path that we should do everything to avoid. And I realise that raises another question. Can I lose my salvation then? I mean, surely if I ask for forgiveness, Jesus will forgive me, right? And of course, we know that's true. In 1 John chapter 1, it makes it clear that there will be times when we sin. In fact, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. What an amazing promise that is. And I'm sure every Christian in history has found great relief at some time or another because of that promise. But here's the thing. We shouldn't treat it carelessly, like, it, it doesn't matter if we sin then, because, you know, he'll forgive us. Because that kind of heart attitude might be revealing that you never belong to him in the first place. That there has been no true repentance. That he doesn't have your heart. In which case, you could be on the road to hell. But you say, but, but aren't we saved by faith alone, not by our works? Yes. But the evidence that we're truly saved, that we've received a new heart and been born again, is that we seek after God. Our heart's desire is to obey God and do what pleases Him. That's the orientation of our hearts. And yes, there may be many times when we fall short, when we stumble, but then we repent, we express true sorrow for our wrongdoing, and not only ask for for forgiveness, but for the strength and grace to resist temptation and to fight against sin. That's the faith that saves us. As John Piper wrote, Faith delivers from hell, and the faith that delivers us from hell delivers from lust. I do not mean that our faith produces a perfect flawlessness in this life. I mean that it produces a persevering fight. The evidence of justifying faith, or in other words, the evidence that we are truly saved, is that it fights lust. Jesus didn't say that lust would entirely vanish. He said that the evidence of being heaven bound is that we gouge out our eye rather than settle for a pattern of lust. Does that describe you? Some of you will remember the story of Aaron Ralston. Uh, that was made into a film. He was a rock climber who, in 2003, attempted a solo descent of Blue John Canyon in Utah. And he dislodged a boulder that pinned his hand to the canyon wall. And he spent five days there, getting more and more dehydrated and delirious, and it must have been like a living hell. And he realized that if he was gonna survive, he had to take radical action. So he broke his forearm and then managed to amputate it with a dull pocket knife. And it took him an hour to cut through his arm. But it was the only way he could break free. And then he had to make his way through the rest of the canyon, rappel down a 65 foot drop, all one handed, and then hike six miles until he found someone who could help him. You know, people will go to extreme measures to save their lives. And Jesus was appealing to that instinct to demonstrate the measures we should take to avoid hell. He said we should be prepared to cut off our right hand or gouge out our right eye to escape the fatal effects of lust. And I'm sure you must be aware that when Jesus said cut off your hand, he was talking metaphorically, not literally. Uh, But I do mention that because there have been people in history who have taken this literally and actually cut off body parts to avoid sinning. So please don't do that. But Jesus is using these extreme metaphors to illustrate how ruthless we need to be when it comes to sexual sin. In 1 Peter 2.11 it says, "...abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul." We are in a war, and in war you cannot afford to be passive. In war people die. It's life or death. And so we have to be ruthless. Because the consequences of sexual sin go far beyond how it affects me personally. It destroys families and marriages. It leaves scars on children, affecting future generations. It leads to divorce and abortion, both of which God hates. It ruins our witness, hinders the Gospel, dishonours Jesus, stains his church and separates us from God. And it's why the Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't reason with it. Run the other way. I want to ask you, are there measures you need to take today maybe extreme measures, a relationship you need to cut off or an action you need to take regarding maybe your computer, your phone, your television, someone you need to confess to, your spouse, your pastor, a trusted friend. I guarantee it will be painful like amputating your arm, but it might just save you. I was reminded of a short story that C.S. Lewis told to illustrate this in his classic book, The Great Divorce. It's called The Story of the Little Red Lizard. And like many of his stories, it's allegorical. It's about a person who was uh, ghost-like, or you might say a shadow of a man, whose home is Gehenna, but who visits the realm of heaven. And on his shoulder sat a little red lizard, As someone explained, this person's life had been ruined by lust, and that lust, in the form of a lizard, now sat on his shoulder, and was whispering things into his ear. Suddenly, a bright, shining, angelic man appears, and asks the ghostly figure if he wants him to make the lizard quiet. Of course I do, the ghost replied. Then I'll kill him for you, says the angel, stepping forward. Ah, you're burning me! Stay back, says the ghost. You didn't say anything about killing him. I wasn't thinking of something as drastic as that. But it's the only way, says the angel. Shall I kill it? But the ghost keeps making excuses. Look, he says, it's asleep now. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Perhaps another day. And then this foul lizard starts speaking to the ghosts. Be careful. He could kill me. Just one word from you and he'll do it. And then you'll be without me forever. Look, I'll be good. I know I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Meanwhile, the angel continues to press the ghost. Have I got your permission? Finally, the man cries, God help me, God help me. And he screams in agony as the angel grasps the writhing, biting lizard and throws it to the ground where its back is broken. And as soon as that happens, the ghost begins to appear more and more solid until he materializes as a man, I want to ask you, are there sins you are living with? Because, like that ghost, we reason with sin, don't we? Well, you know, it's not as bad as doing that. Or, you know, I won't let it go too far this time. I, you know, I, I won't do it again. You know, I, I'm in control of this. And, and God will forgive me. But the truth is, if the lizard is not killed, it will demand more. And more. And here's the thing I think Jesus is really getting at here. You won't kill the lizard by gouging out your eye or amputating your hand. I'll say that again. You won't kill the lizard by gouging out your eye or amputating your hand. Just think for a minute about what Jesus is saying here. If adultery takes place in the heart, in our innermost thoughts, then removing your right eye won't help you, will it? It might make it more difficult, but you've still got your left eye, right? And even if you were totally blind, you would still have your imagination, your thoughts. Eyes and hands don't cause us to sin. You could chop off all your body parts and still have an impure heart. Eliminating body parts won't change that. It won't kill the lizard. The Pharisees try to do it by adding all kinds of laws and rules to guard them from temptation, like uh, avoiding any contact with women. Not being in the company of women. Even hating women so that you don't desire them, as if women are the problem. But what Jesus is saying is, you know, you can cut yourself off from women, like you can gouge out your eye, or perhaps you might throw away your computer, or uh, change jobs, or move house, but you've still got a problem. Because the problem Is your heart we should still take radical action when necessary to not put ourselves in the way of temptation right if it's going to cause us to stumble but the more important issue is the issue of our hearts you see if we truly love God with all our heart soul strength and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves then we wouldn't break any of God's commandments would we we wouldn't commit adultery steal, or murder, or lie, or cheat. Uh, We wouldn't be hateful, lustful, vengeful, prideful, because our hearts would already be full, full of love. Because as children of God we would know the love of the Father, the love that he has lavished upon us and which overflows from us to God and for one another. But only God can do that in our hearts. It's why the Apostle Paul prayed so often for the churches that they would know God's love poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this alone, any more than the ghost-like man could. He needed the angelic presence, the presence of God to help him. God, help me. God, help me, he cried. Are you ready to cry out to God for his help? willpower alone won't help you we need the power of the holy spirit as it says in romans 8 for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In C.S. Lewis's story, when the lizard was thrown to the ground and the ghost-like figure became truly human, a, a perfect man, the lizard, was also then transformed and became this uh, majestic silvery white stallion with a, a golden mane and tail. And the man, now set free from his torment, climbed on the stallion and rode away into the morning sunrise. And that's just a beautiful picture of the life that God intends for us. A life of freedom, power, and glory. A life that will be perfected when Jesus returns, but with his indwelling spirit can be experienced here and now as we ask for his help and for his grace and strength. It's as we receive his love and his power that our increasing desire for God and the satisfaction that we find in him will totally eclipse the desires of our flesh and the feeble flicker of pleasure that this world offers us. Lewis ends his story with these words. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Will we allow Jesus to transform our lizards into stallions? Ask him now. Spend some time in prayer. Repent of the things that separate you from him resolve to fight those desires of the flesh maybe through confession to someone or taking action be ruthless where you need to be but for heaven's sake ask for the help of the holy spirit when we cry god help me he comes and then ask him to fill your heart with his love to purify your heart with his love to cause your heart to overflow with his love it's his love that conquers all May God help us today.